listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to human rights activist Maureen Webb and alleged hacker Lowry Love. And so hacking, originally it's a technical practice, it's an ethos of technologists, but it's increasingly becoming a, a metaphor for a new kind of social activism, which is all about distributed democracy, distributed power, distributed decision making. Maureen and Lowry shared their insights into the relationship between hacking and political activism, the dangers of government and private sector surveillance, and how hackers are rebuilding society by challenging the status quo. This episode is an edited version of a recent live stream event. You can view the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Now, hackers have a bad reputation, but hacking has become a vital practice in the new wave of activism in which ordinary citizens work to reinvent democracy for a digital era. Hacking has been characterized as an artistic practice, as a practical tool, and sometimes even as a criminal activity. But regardless of the motivations, those doing the hacking are all too often misunderstood and misrepresented. In her new book, Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance and Authoritarianism, author Maureen Webb argues passionately for our need to better understand the practices and the motives of hackers. It is a deep dive into their personality, their politics and the varied motivations behind their work. Larry Love is a perfect example of the sort of hacker that Maureen profiles. Previously wanted by the United States for his alleged activities with the hacker collective Anonymous, Lowry has become a passionate advocate for the use of hacking as a form of activism. But to kick off this conversation, I want to turn to you, Maureen, and I want to ask you what caused you to write this book on hacking? Well, um, I'm a constitutional uh, lawyer and a labor lawyer, a civil libertarian. And uh, my first book was about the growth of mass surveillance after the uh, events of 9-11. So I'd written a book called Illusions of Security, Global Surveillance and Democracy in the Post-9-11 World. After the Snowden leaks, my editor from City Lights uh, suggested that I write a book about hackers, a subject which I knew little about. And so I began this odyssey, which literally I... I wrote this book over four years. I started at the Chaos Computer Club, the camp that they put on every four years um, in 2015 in Germany. And it was a real odyssey. I I traveled to um, Germany and then to Spain, uh, where I interviewed an activist group called Exnet. Uh, I went to Italy and talked to parliamentarians uh, from Cinque Stelle movement. Uh, and I traveled to San Francisco, spoke with lawyers at the electric Frontier Foundation and ended up in Boston speaking to academics at MIT and Harvard uh, who have, you know, really started to mainstream um, hacker ideas and hacker experiments. Now, your background is as a a labor lawyer. I just wondered why it was so important for you in writing this book that you immersed yourself into the lives of the hacking community. And also, as a labor lawyer, what sort of perspective did that give you on the hacking community? Well, you know, this was really a project of journalism. Um, I was reporting on uh, the hacking movement, um, and so it was important to go and see it for myself. 
it's a very complex topic. It, it traverses many disciplines and uh, many issues. And I also, I, I think that if anything, the book hopefully fulfills a public service in describing some very wide and important issues in an accessible way. And so it's really a narrative. It's a narrative of my odyssey as an every person trying to understand the significance of hacking in the 21st century. And it also allows hackers themselves to speak with their own voices. The early feedback is that these are really marvelous people that I that I was able to speak to very interesting voices that you'll hear. As a labor lawyer, well, I'm concerned with the sustainability of the digital economy that we're seeing uh, arise around us, the sustainability of this platform capitalism that destroying so many vectors of the economy, the idea of the end of work, which uh, this pandemic recently has brought home in a very sobering way to people that by the mid-century, we might have 50% unemployment just because of advances in technology and how are we going to organize our societies around that. I am interested in the concerns of Occupy, the growing inequality in the world, the concentrations of wealth and power. Really, I came to see the hacking movement as it's been developing in the last decade as a kind of new digital populism. And coming from the prairies, being a Canadian who, you know, for whom uh, prairie populism invented our social um our social safety net here and universal health care brought that into our country. I'm not afraid of populism. It's a very interesting time, this backlash against populism, you know, the threats to democracy converging with the new challenges of the digital era. The core of the book, there's this thesis, this idea that hackers are vital disruptors. Now, often when we think about hacking, we, we think about these individuals, these hackers who are dangerous or, or nihilistic. But in the book, you say that hackers are agents of positive chaos. So could you tell us a little bit more about that thesis? You know, hacking has evolved uh, enormously uh, since the 1950s. Um, essentially, there's a, a phenomenon that many people have been missing, which is the recent exponential growth of the progressive hacker scene around organizations like the Chaos Computer Club in Europe. When I speak of hackers as vital disruptors, Yes, hackers have been engaged in a whole range of, of activities from the clearly dangerous and nihilistic to the highly altruistic and admirable. And along that range, there is a range of transgression and even criminality. But being a civil liberties activist myself, I understand the value of civil disobedience um, and the, the importance that it's played throughout history in bringing about important changes in society. So in that sense, I do see that there's value in that whole range of activity, not clearly the purely malign and destructive, but the rest of that spectrum. And when when I say that they're vital disruptors, well, you know, it's quite concrete. Where we have surveillance capitalism, where we have increasing social control through digital technology by states, hackers have been fighting for encryption for civilians and privacy for citizens, where we have had the growing disinformation wars that nearly overwhelmed our democratic elections. We have hackers fighting for truth and transparency, where there has been an increasing commercialization of the internet and a sequestering uh, and a capturing of its potential by 
corporate gatekeepers. We have hackers fighting for net neutrality. Uh, and decentralization, where we have proprietary closed code and the emergence of digital rights management, you know, which is infecting all of our computers and closing up creative content, preventing people from really a huge shift of property rights to corporations away from individuals. We have hackers who are fighting for free software and an end to digital rights management. And, and where we have these platform monopolies that are killing local economies and sucking up vast amounts of capital and and not using it in a in a constructive way we have hackers fighting for alternatives that we could build a new economy around so very much in highly sophisticated ways and in a very broad range of experiments i think that hackers are going to be vital disruptors to the way that things are tending to go right now. What's so interesting about the book is how you give this almost complete history of hacking and the practice of hacking. You go all the way back to the 1950s and and you look at how the motivations of hackers have evolved over time. And you start with uh, Stephen Levy's hacker ethic and go all the way through to the hacker way, the the way in which hacking was co-opted by Silicon Valley and, and the hacker way became this way of doing things that corporations and companies like Facebook. Over that history, how have we seen public perception of hacking change? The public averts to it in fits and starts uh, as dramatic events happen and the perception morphs, has morphed several times over the decades. Yeah, I start the history back in at MIT in the 1950s when the, the word hacker was coined and young uh, computer scientists were, were experimenting with the early mainframe computers. That was really the first wave of hackers. Second wave of hackers were concerned with getting personal computers to the people. And out of that grew a lot of the early Silicon Valley companies so that hacking and the hacker ethos was in the DNA of Silicon Valley from the beginning. You know, I guess the hacker ethos, broadly speaking, I would say it's anyone who subscribes to the idea that systems um, deserve to be taken apart and examined and studied and modified and repurposed and, and their purposes interrogated. You know, that's broadly speaking, the hacker, the hacker ethos. In, in Europe, there was much more of a, an emphasis on the role of technology in society and a much more critical analysis of how digital technology would change society. And early digital rights pioneers like Wal Holland talked about, you know, the responsibility of, of hackers. And his idea was that hackers should fight the negative tendencies of, of technology with humor and skill. He thought that the way things happened in the world was much less deterministic than we thought, much less linear. But in fact, he ascribed to a sort of a chaos theory that, you know, hackers could intervene as, as positive agents of positive chaos to uh, disrupt um negative tendencies of technology. And then in the 90s, we had the cypherpunks who in the United States were sort of high level guys in, in Silicon Valley, libertarians. Um, but they started a listserv that many young hackers joined, including people like Julian Assange. And ultimately, out of that in the early 2000s, I think that you had the growth of 
a much uh, more progressive hacker scene that has only been growing exponentially. Um, so while maybe in the 80s you had teenagers in the basements experimenting in, in ways that were not terribly politically informed, that's really quite a small part of hacking, the hacking story. The, the hacking story now is really moving forward, almost in a way trying to conceive and bring the ideals of the Occupy movement into the digital era. Your background, Maureen, is, is writing about security. And, and there is a thread throughout this book that feels like you're, you're looking at hackers as the individuals who are able to challenge some of the dangers that both government and private sector surveillance poses for democracy. So I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that tricky relationship between secrecy and transparency and between openness and anonymity. How can these two things coexist in, in our politics and in the 21st century? Well, I think at a sort of a larger meta level, what what you see in the last decade is the convergence of the interests of large corporations with governments as large corporations capture more and more profits from digital advances and governments partner with them to achieve greater and greater social control. And then, of course, the corruption that happens when politicians are captured by those special interests. The hacker is like the shaman. They're like the new shaman in in society, right? They have achieved almost folkloric status for the reason that they are the savants in this world. The rest of us know nothing about code. We're at total, uh, totally at the mercy of the code makers, and code has is now ubiquitous in our lives. It, it and with the Internet of Things and smart cities, it, it's it's going to be everywhere. Neither governments nor large corporations have an incentive to think responsibly about technology and society. And it's really been almost left to the hobbyists, to the hackers, many of whom are running their own technology consultancies or working in Silicon Valley in order to make a living. But the the conscience and the consciousness of the hacker is sort of threaded throughout that landscape. And certainly, you know, as a lawyer, I can appreciate that even institutions need some sphere of transparency. And I think hackers would agree with that. We know that Julian Assange was harshly criticized for the redaction that he made on on uh, uh, an early set of documents that he um, released. And, and then he was, I understand, falsely accused of not redacting another set when it really was the, the fault of the Guardian. There's very few people, I mean, I do tell a story of one hacker John um, Young of Cryptome, who seems who seems to release everything, but uh, there is this balance, and there's a balance when it comes to law enforcement, you know, and issues of the dark web, and and there has to be some scope for law enforcement to investigate activities. But on the whole, I think what we see emerging is this new manifesto of the hacker movement, which is privacy for the weak, transparency for the powerful. It's the powerful who should be accountable to the people. And in in a democracy, the people are not accountable to their government, except in very defined ways and with rights of due process. No, it's the rulers who are accountable to the governed. So that's a very profound manifesto that has emerged recently. It's, It's an abstraction from the example of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange on the one hand, transparency for the powerful, and the revelations of Edward Snowden on the other, privacy for the weak. 
In that case, I want to ask you a little more about the relationship between hacking and politics, because it felt from reading the book that almost one can't exist without the other in the way hacking holds our political environment accountable. Does the political environment impact the motives and the methods that the hackers use, or does the existence of hackers change the way in which political systems are, are structured? Do they have to coexist to hold democracy accountable? You know, hacking is... Uh unavoidably highly political, a highly political activity. And um, I heard a a Spanish uh, hacker and computer scientist said something really interesting to me. He said that that hacking is between reform and revolution. He said reformers love hacking because it introduces changes and reform, but it's not full-on revolution. Revolutionaries love hacking because it triggers, they hope that the changes that they bring will trigger emergent properties, which will be revolutionary to the system. So hacking exists in this strange zone between the two. I think that if you look at the history, just just look at the history of the United States, it really invented the idea of popular sovereignty. It didn't exist before. Democracies in Europe and places like Canada were based on old ideas of monarchy where you know a certain amount of power was given to the people through representatives. Um, and so that there was a part of government that was still, the head of state was still the monarch, but the there was a part of the state power was given to representatives of the people. And in the United States, they innovated this idea of popular sovereignty, where actually the theory was that the power is held by the people and it's never given up by the people. And the government is in that sense, not a representative democracy, but fully accountable to the people. This idea of popular sovereignty, I think it's something that that hackers are reviving. And you'll you'll see in a lot of uh, hacker discussions and tracks as sort of a, an examination of the American constitution, the ideas of that constitution, and what popular sovereignty means in the digital age. And two of the fundamental conditions for democracy and popular sovereignty are the right to privacy, autonomy for, for people in their private lives and thoughts, and transparency, the only uh, remedy for corruption and um, the only way to hold the powerful accountable. So in many ways, it feels like hackers are are responsible and help to continue the ongoing experiment of politics. When it comes to the idea of hacking, and I want to jump to how we think about it today in the 21st century, it, it feels like we mentioned the word hacking and, and it's synonymous with the idea of WikiLeaks and it's synonymous with the idea of Julian Assange and it's synonymous with the idea of Edward Snowden. I just wonder how these three individuals have come to define our understanding of hacking in the 21st century. Yeah, well, those were, you know, two of the most momentous stories in the history of hacking, the short history of hacking. What Snowden brought to the world was that he he really induced a collective epiphany among the ordinary person about the extent and danger of state and corporate surveillance. You know, obviously a lot of journalism, a lot of stories um, bubbling up uh, since um, the war on terror, but it was really only with Snowden that it really came home in a visceral way 
to the ordinary person that uh, that we were looking at the end of privacy. And, and I think part of that was the idea, you know, people kind of felt that even if they might be watched, they still had the anonymity of the crowd and they didn't understand the degree to which their activities could be pinpointed at any time. That was the gift of Edward Snowden. The contribution of Julian Assange, and I've heard hackers say that, you know, people like Assange and Richard Stallman, their intellectual influence is is far greater than Larry Page or, you know, any of these uh, big Silicon Bill Gates, any of these big Silicon Valley guys. What Assange really forced was this question of transparency and accountability in the modern age. You know, if you look at the scope of what WikiLeaks has uh posted since the beginning of its operations, one might question the wisdom of some of their later activities, but they were really revolutionary in terms of what people can expect to know about what the powerful are doing, that both their own governments and the oligarchs that rule them. Really, I do think that Assange and Snowden are responsible for this, um, the, the force behind this new manifesto of privacy for the weak, transparency for the powerful, which many people, ordinary people with little connection to digital technology would ascribe to. But I think that what's needed is actually a whole new digital era civics that people also need to understand the importance of net neutrality to their democracies, the importance of free software. They need to understand what this new digital economy is all about. So that these ideas, what I would call the organizing principles of a digital era civics are as important to democracy if people understood them as the old enlightenment ideas of equality, fraternity and liberty were back in the 18th century. I want to talk a little bit more about what that might actually look like, this idea of building out democracy into cyberspace, because it, it feels like, at least in the 21st century, hackers have moved away from um, hacking specific systems towards almost building alternative systems, challenging the monoliths of, of platform capitalism and, and trying to build the web that we deserve and the web that we want. So in what way is net neutrality the heart of this and and how are hackers trying to achieve this? I mean, what are some of the new technologies they might be employing to build these alternative new systems? Well, yeah, I mean, net neutrality guarantees that everyone has access to the internet and can use it equally. You know, it was the original structure of the internet as a decentralized interoperable system, but that has increasingly been attacked and modified by governments and corporations as they try to sequester or gatekeep parts of the internet for their own interests. And so, yes, one of the major projects of the progressive hacker scene right now is to reinvent or recapture or build out a new version of a decentralized, interoperable, privacy-secure internet and web. Not an easy task, either politically or technically. Technically, it's actually very complex. So you have people, there's a group at the Chaos Computer Club that's um, been working since at least 2015 um, on a new civilian internet to you know, it's sort of a race between good and bad actors. They, you've got DARPA, the defense uh, agency, you know, they're the ones that created uh, total surveillance uh, 
uh, infrastructures after the war on terror. On the one hand, they've contributed to the development of Tor. And right now they're talking about rebuilding a new internet that will um, fix some of the flaws of the old one because the old one didn't, I think when it was built, as an interoperable system, they weren't really thinking of privacy concerns. But what the U.S. Defense Department will build could be a lot less progressive than what um, the Chaos Computer Club might build. And then even the European Union is jumping in with a new initiative for a new privacy secure uh, civilian internet. You know, it's a big societal project and, and, and hacking groups like the Chaos Computer Club are actually being asked to advise various committees uh, in the European Union that are working on that. And Tim Berners-Lee also has a, a project called Solid, where he's trying to uh, reconfigure, rebuild the, the World Wide Web. But there's just a vast array of, of hacker experiments out there right now that could fundamentally change the political economy as we know it. And they're using federated technology, the existing technology of the internet, but they're also experimenting in peer-to-peer -peer technology and blockchain. And, you know, these are technologies in their early stages, so it all looks a bit pie in the sky, but but some of these experiments could um, could really lead to profound changes in the political economy. Now, some of the things you're mentioning feel very technical, feel very confusing to everyday users, everyday citizens and the, and the general public at large. And I just wonder two things, really. One, how does the general public better engage with the ideas of security, privacy and data rights? And also, how does the general public become, I guess, more empathetic towards hackers? I mean, often hackers you know, work, then they don't truly understand the social consequences of their actions, their really doing it because of a fascination for technology. And sometimes the general public doesn't understand that. They don't fully understand their motivations. How do we as individuals better understand our data rights and also better understand hackers? Well, I think there's a huge onus on the public to get with the 21st century um, in terms of our civic understanding. I would put that on us. But, you know, I think we do need to under we do need a new digital era civics. We've got to understand why um, things like Cambridge Analytica to the kind of um, piecework that Uber and um, um, other platform monopolies throw us um, um, to um, how our monetary systems work. Uh, we've got to understand this new landscape, the way that hackers understand it. As for the technical, I was very interested in writing this book to look at the interface between the user and the technology. So not just describing hacker tools and the concepts behind them and the ideas behind them, but actually trying to learn how to use them. And one theme that runs throughout all of this uh, work is usability. It's very hard to create usable tools and it's it's very hard to create business models that can overtake the platform monopoly models. So I think for users, we're kind of hopeless, but I don't think that's our fault. I do think that that the technologists have to create things that are usable and appealing. But on the, on the other hand, for citizens, it's important that we start understanding the world the way that hackers do. And I think that there's been a progression in the hacker movement. A lot of those early teenage hackers in the 1980s and early 90s that got into trouble with various exploits, they too have evolved. 
And they are now quite sophisticated political thinkers and actors at the interface of technology and society. Well, to help us better understand sort of how hackers think the way they do, we're lucky to have a well-known British hacker join us on the Futures podcast today. And that uh, hacker is Lowry Love. Now, Lowry, I guess the first question I should probably ask you is, would you actually describe yourself as a hacker? So in order to answer that question, we have to unpick what is an unfortunate overloading or collision of the meanings in hacker. So I identify unreservedly and enthusiastically as a hacker, but in the sense that Maureen was putting across as uh, people who experiment with technology, who push the boundaries, who live on the frontier, who um, use their imagination to re-envision what is possible through the interface of technology and humanity and society. At the same time, a parallel meaning evolved, not not entirely distinct because of the overlap of the means, but it became in the eyes of society that wasn't as interested in the imaginative and the creative, but was interested in the transgressive element that became this meaning of hacker as someone who is a criminal, who uses those abilities to cross over a border of what is a, a defined um, engagement with a technological system um, and either to cause some inadvertent disruption or more recently to engage in what would be a traditional criminal activity through the means of technology. And so I don't define myself as a criminal hacker, despite some allegations in history with the US Department of Justice and some long ordeals uh, pursuant to that. But we, we do we, we kind of fought this semantic battle for a while where we tried to get people to use the word cracker rather than hacker and it was um it was an uphill struggle so we've, we've we had to live with the fact that we have this overload this um collision of meanings and we, we just have to sort of explain the nuance where we can in what way larry do you see hacking as this positive force in the world there is a necessity in in society and in the world for the use of imagination to um, to break through where things have become stuck in a rut. We see this in politics. Um, there there is a sort of tendency for the traditional people and systems that hold power, which is usually highly correlated with wealth um, and position within a sort of social stratification, to have things work in a very easy way for them so that they can continue to accumulate their um, their wealth and their power in the world at the expense of people's civil liberties, at the expense of freedom and the ability to do things differently. And hackers, in the positive sense of a, a chaotic actor, are able to disrupt that. So where, where the evolution of society has become stayed, has become blocked, through hacking, you can puncture the equilibrium, to, to borrow a term from evolutionary biology, you can create a new kind of possibility that wasn't in the previous rules by deciding to step out of the rule system onto a meta level and to imagine a new game. And I think that's what hackers do at the sort of very root. What was it, Laurie, that, that sparked your personal interest in hacking? What led to your interest in groups such as Cyber Army and, and Anonymous? Um, so I... I'm a bit of a nerdy kind of guy. I'm I'm autistic or aspergic, so I had some issue. Continue to have some issues with socialisation in the traditional sense. And um, we got the internet, or well, it's not legitimately got the internet. I managed to obtain a modem, and I ran some you know telephone cables under the carpet, so I wouldn't get in trouble with my parents. And suddenly, this whole new world opened up to me, where I was able to use my 
let's just say I was a bit bored in school sometimes. And so I had this latent intellectual capacity um, that the internet was able to enable me to use and, and to, to cross over these borders and boundaries and these sort of arbitrary distinctions that limit you, especially as a kind of precocious child. I was able to meet people, you know, uh, of like-minded and not necessarily limited by geography, by language, um, by all of these other things that can pin us into a small locus of uh, engagement in the world. And I had this interest in maximising what I could do with my brains and imagination and technology uh, offered a way to do that. Um, to go back to changing the rules of the game, we had this old computer system called the MSX and we had a lot of floppy disks that we copied when we were in Finland on a holiday. And um, the first thing you do is you play the games, but then at some point you realize that the games are actually, well, some of them are written in lines of code that you can look at and um, you sort of mash your head against that for a few hundred hours. And then you realize that if you stop the game at a certain point when you've just been eaten by the monster and look at what the program listing is doing, you can change those rules so that the monster can't eat you and you can get further in the game. And that opened up a sense of great power. I guess the rest of my life has been the exploration and the elaboration of what it means to have that power and how to use it, hopefully for the good of society. I mean, at the core of that power is what you've called your neurodiversity. I mean, that's really at the heart of how you think about technology and imaginatively think about technology. And I just wonder if you could describe a little bit more about how that's such a superpower in many ways. Yeah. So, I mean, you use exactly the right word. Um, un unfortunately, in history, um, people have been expected to sort of uh, fit in this nebulous concept of normal, and those who weren't normal were considered to be aberrant or to be broken in some way. And the, you have this old turn of phrase of um, trying to fit the square shapes through the round holes, you know, that ch children's uh, toy. Um, and recently, we're, we're just starting on this journey in society of um, really understanding and appreciating that we have complementary types of human being. So we all have our own different superpowers um, and the the combination of all of them creates a kind of synergy where we are greater than the whole. And if we, we were all exactly the same, then there would be um, the, that lack of diversity would cause an ecological problem where uh, um, if we're faced with a new challenge, then without having that diversity of thinking and approaching the world, then we wouldn't be able to respond to it and to get past it. So we kind of need not just the geeks and the nerds, but we need all of the people that are different and special in some way. And, and so if we can start to look at it more as um, we have a different superpowers and of course different challenges as well, but we can actually harness that diversity. Now, I, I want to look at the case that brought you onto the scene. So it was in October 2013 when, when really your life changed. You, you were accused of hacking uh, US federal organizations. And I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit of that story, uh, I guess, in your own words. Sure. So, I mean, it goes back to the wonderful but tragically short life of um, someone called Aaron Swartz, um, who, who Maureen will know about through um, the, the research she did on, on her book. Um, he, he was a young technologist. He co-founded what became um, Reddit, but um, he also at the age of 14, uh, co-authored one of the protocols, um, RSS, which is still used to syndicate content on the web. And later on, when the US government was um, attempting to bring in some rather oppressive legislation at the behest of the copyright cartel, the Hollywood MPAA and the audio industry to stop people sharing digital content or, or to criminalize it further, and at the other hand, to, to give more control to the government and um, forcing 
internet service providers to share information um, ostensibly to to stop um, malicious computer hacking. Aaron sort of led led some campaigns that um, were eventually joined by the big tech giants who blacked out their their front pages, and those um, bad bits of legislation were stopped. He, he was also tangentially involved in uh, WikiLeaks and the transparency movement, rewriting some software, which is still used today by major media outlets. Um, it's called SecureDrop now to allow people to anonymously and safely upload source documents uh, if they're acting as whistleblowers um, or have some information. He got into trouble for using MIT campus to um, download en masse large amounts of um, scientific journals from the online archive JS tour, which wasn't or arguably should not have been a, a criminal offence. It was just merely the exceeding the terms of service. But uh, unfortunately, the way the, the US legislation that defines uh, criminal hacking in, the, in it allows the exceeding of a terms of service to become a felony and um they wanted to make an example of him, unfortunately, similarly to how it was done with um, civil rights activists under the COINTEL Pro program in the 70s. It was deemed by certain people in power that if we make an example of Aaron Swartz, then it will stop other people from getting too uppity, um, shall we say, in agitating for digital rights and the freedom of the internet. So this um, act of borrowing too many library books was um, leveraged into potentially 30 years in prison and millions of dollars of fines. And Aaron ended his own life, committed suicide by by hanging. And this um, this led to a lot of anger on the internet, uh, which manifested in various ways, some through reform activities uh, in Congress uh, and other means. And another vein, another strand of the response uh, was this activist campaign under the anonymous branding, where the intent was through the use of some chaotic disruptions and some web defacements um, and the threat of the release of um, sensitive information to provoke similarly this reform of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and um, even more so the punitive sentencing leeway that prosecutors have to give defendants effectively a choice between a small amount of charges or charges being piled on and stacked on with various sort of multipliers that judges can apply in sentencing um, so that you have what's called a coercive plea bargaining system where 97% of federal criminal defendants rather than go to trial acquiesce to this offer you can't refuse and take the plea and uh, it was that impossible bind that um that choice that that did not allow a way out for Aaron because of his principles um that resulted in him committing suicide and, and this was just an example of um the massive brokenness of the u.s federal criminal justice system in general so some things were were hacked um as far as I know, nothing particularly malicious was done disruptively or destructively, um, but it was obviously a provocation against some very powerful people in the United States. And I was, uh, you know, as you say, in October 2013, I had the knock on the door and the, the, the National Crime Agency working with the FBI picked me up and I... I Rather than being charged in the UK, which is how it should have been done, a decision was made to try to extradite me to the United States. Now, there was a particular set of circumstances that actually stopped that extradition. I just wonder if you could tell us the details of the case and, and why you were allowed to remain in the UK. Yeah, so a little bit of context in the history. The treaty between the UK and the USA is... Um, is widely considered to be broken. Um, it's one-sided. The United States almost always gets the person that they request under the extradition treaty. It was brought in after the events of 9-11, um, where the UK and US governments were 
in cahoots, shall we say, in some military adventurism uh, as a response. And Tony Blair's government negotiated this treaty where the United States would not have to apply what's called um, a prima facie case, which is just a sufficient evidence that would ordinarily allow someone to be arrested, to, to be questioned and to have a search and seizure on them. So the, the result of this is, and it was a very Kafkaesque experience to go through, but the, on, on under an extradition request from the United States, they can make any assertions that they like um, and none of it has to be proven and none of it can be contested on an evidentiary basis. Um, so we're only able to argue process effectively. So uh, reasons for there not to be extradition that are explicitly outlined in law. And I had the same solicitor as um, someone called Gary McKinnon had. He he was another, is another Aspergic lad who um, did some exploratory hacking, shall we say, and was accused of hacking into NASA to find evidence of aliens and free energy technologies. And his extradition was stopped under human rights grounds by the Home Secretary at the time, Theresa May, um, because it was deemed that because of his health conditions uh, and the particular, should we say, harshness of US detention conditions, their ability to respond to medical concerns, that there was a risk of him committing suicide. And um, after that case was stopped at the political level by the Home Secretary, they changed the law to take away the discretion of the Home Secretary to consider human rights, which is uh, legally, jurisprudentially problematic in itself. But they, as a bone, they introduced this thing called the forum bar. And the forum bar it just says if it's in the interest of justice for there to be a domestic prosecution, there should not be an extradition. So it's a kind of inferior common sense bar against extradition. But nobody had been able to win under that legal argument until our case. And um, what was good from my point of view as, a, um, as somebody, as a reformist, shall we say, or somebody who wants to fix the system, is it gave us the ability to adduce a lot of evidence about exactly the same things that the hacktivist campaign was seeking to highlight, which is the coercive pre-bargaining, the disproportionate sentences, in my case, 99 years for a non-violent act extraterritorially, and most importantly, how bad the conditions are. And um, unfortunately, we're seeing that play out right now in uh, Rikers, where the, the, the virus is about to cause a bloodbath and the, the conditions there are, are not able to address. And um, so we lost in the first instance at Westminster Magistrates Court, where you're expected to lose because the judges there are particularly beholden, shall we say, to the special relationship. Um, but we were able to win on appeal under the forum bar, but also a separate grounds, which is that it would be unjust and oppressive for someone with my mental health backgrounds, which is one of depression, anxiety, and my physical health complications to be sent to the US. And, and that was illuminated by the expert witnesses that we had to speak about those conditions and the, the things that, in my point of view, need desperately to be reformed in that system. How do you think your case has changed the perception of hacking, both the perception and the way it's been legislated to date? It's interesting, the weird paradox between the power system, the United States Department of Justice, wanting to take me, somebody who's never visited the United States, and put me in jail effectively for the rest of my life, versus the public perception, which almost universally has been positive. I, I've never had anyone in person try to give me a hard time for what I was accused of being involved in. It's usually, let me shake your hand, let me buy you a drink, you're, you're a hero. And so I think that exposes the fact that the way the criminal justice system and the way entrenched power structures are uh, responding to hacking is massively at odds in the, the public's imagination of what is done, where that is done for a positive activist reason. Most 
people in the public rightly decry and take a dim view of people using hacking skills uh, and abilities to commit fraud or to scam your mother or grandmother or somebody else who's technologically unsavvy. But people look upon hacktivists as a kind of culture hero. And, and we have to see this in the correct context of history. As Maureen was talking about disruption, in the, the United States has a wonderful mythos of its values in terms of the revolution against the traditional European systems of democracy that were not truly representative. The people were not sovereign. And the, the founding fathers uh, created this wonderful constitution, this Bill of Rights. Um, you know, unfortunately, the reality has not always met with the ideal, but that ideal is still very inspirational in the world today. And these founding fathers who were lauded um, in American history were disruptors. They rebelled against the, the UK crown. They did some things, you know, the, the Boston Tea Party uh, is a celebrated act of civil disobedience. And so whether a disruptor is seen to to be vilified or seen to be heroic it depends on how the history is written afterwards and that depends on the success of that disruption. I mean, you, you've been quoted as saying security breaches are in many ways human rights defenders. I just wondered uh, what you meant by that. Well, I mean, let's look at the case again of Edward Snowden. The, the world would not have been able to have this epiphany on the dangers of encroaching totalitarian surveillance systems had Edward Snowden not engaged in an act that was heavily not encouraged by the people he was working for that required um, massive personal risk on his behalf and required him to breach the security protocols in the NSA and in the private corporation that he was working for and to get that information out to the public, which again required people that were willing to publish that information, which is a massive act of courage which unfortunately we need to continue fighting for because I don't know today if the Washington Times and the Guardian would would actually publish those tranches those caches of information anymore and with the vilification and the criminalization of wikileaks in the uh, ongoing attempt to extradite julian assange we risk the chilling effects of the fear of the consequences of um, putting that information into the public hands and um, so it, it really depends what is breached you know if, if um, somebody's a private individual's banking details and is taken by uh, people working for organized crime then that there's obviously no civic positive effect of that. But to use another recent example, the Panama Papers, where the source for a massive act of co collaborative journalism was a hacker that breached the, the email system of this um, law firm that was facilitating massive amounts of tax evasion by uh, huge numbers of powerful and wealthy people. We need to consider that hackers are a kind of whistleblower and we need to give them the same protections that we give to whistleblowers working within public bodies or corporations. Now, I'm not sure how much you can and you can't tell us, uh, Larry, but uh, apparently you're now working as uh, what's commonly known as a white hack hacker. And uh, you might not be able to tell us what you're working on, but apparently you worked on advising the NHS during some of the WannaCry scandal. I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what it means to be a white hack hacker, if indeed you are or are not one. And uh, I wonder if that form of hacking still provides the same sort of satisfaction. Just to correct you there, it's white white hat. And it comes from the um, Western movies where the um, the good the good gunslinger, the sheriff would wear the white hat and the, the bad gunslingers, the cattle rustlers and the, the criminals would wear the black hat. This is kind of this dichotomy um, of whether you're working. And it's not necessarily between good and bad, but it's more working within a system versus working 
out with the system in a more chaotic capacity. And in reality, very few people are exclusively white hat uh, or exclusively black hat. People tend to wear different hats at different times, depending on what they're up to. And you'd be surprised how many people in the industry hone their skills, not through legitimate means of learning them that they you know played around on the internet and considered it to be their playground and had the benefit of never falling foul of law enforcement or if they did they managed to sort of not lose 10 years in prison and get rehabilitated and to to make big bucks keeping the world safe and and we need we need people to do this because we have a massive skills shortage the entire world economically through the security of computer systems the good example as you said is the nhs and this WannaCry ransomware, or ostensibly ransomware, it turned out to be a state-sponsored attack that was pretending to be ransomware, but it crippled the computer systems of the National Health Service and many other uh, organizations around the world. And there was an inability for the computer security industry to respond fast enough just because institutional inertia. And so I, I sort of helped organize like an ad hoc militia or, you know, so we say a group of hobbyists and people who do work in the industry but were, were doing this on their spare time just to help get the information out because in a situation like that the faster you could get out information and tell people how to respond to minimize their threat or to mitigate the effects if they had been breached then the more damage could be avoided and it was the first real situation where people could have died directly if that cat scanner if that piece of medical equipment can't be used and somebody needs that machine to to have the diagnosis to have the treatment to survive then there could have been a di direct loss of life as, uh, as a result of this breach and so yeah today I, I work as a information security consultant as security operations engineer not because I have um, given up on my principles or sold out to the system but because a you know I have bills to pay but b most importantly we need people to keep uh, to keep us safe and so that I don't believe that there is necessarily a tension between those two capacities what I do worry about is over legitimization of hackers can suck out this ability to act as dissenting agents so I believe we have to have both so we have to have people being brought up um, and trained to work within the systems but we also need to maintain that aspect of the hacker ethos which is willing to question and willing to say potentially where it's necessary, I will step outside of what is considered acceptable behavior to create the conditions to fix something that is broken. And Maureen, I, I just want to turn to you again. I just wonder if you had any questions for Lowry. I'd like to test a bounce a thesis off of you, uh, Laurie. Um, one thing that I heard from academics at MIT and Harvard that are embracing hacker themed projects and studying hacker politics. They're very interested in systems theory. And, you know, I guess at a simple level, there's the idea that you have positive and negative feedback in, in systems and that you need to be able to assimilate feedback to be able to correct systems. But another idea that was put to me was um, this idea of emergence, that change comes about not in necessarily the linear ways that we tend to think of, like I might think of as a civil libertarian, if we could just convince enough people to use alternative hacker tools, we could get rid of Facebook, right? So the idea of sort of a critical mass of people, but rather that change comes about, especially with technology, where there might be some small change in the micro that triggers emergent effects that change the macro system. 
And that gave me a new way of thinking about hackers and why they were so important. Because if we don't know how technology is going to evolve and something small could take us in a totally new direction, then we do need that experimentation at the edges. So I know how do hackers think of systems? Because really it's systems that you're dealing with. I mean, we're talking about giant computer systems now, globalized computer systems. I guess there's two aspects of that. One to do with the, the feedback, uh, positive and negative feedback, but also the interrelation of the, the hacker and the system as it's defined in a limited scope as um, a set of interacting components understood to interact in a sort of limited, finitely prescribed way. There's this notion of cybernetics which was this kind of sort of weird, quirky science that emerged uh, in the, the latter half of the last century and is still ongoing, but it's never really broken through to the mainstream. And it comes from this uh, Greek word, uh, Kubernetes, and the, that was the tiller, the um, person who controlled the rudder of a ship. And they would ensure that the ship sailed right by having a system where they'd look at a, a star or um, a la- landmark and they would control the rudder in, in response to how that drifted on their line of sight and then um, and so the ship the rudder and the human being and the the thing off in the distance in the future were working together in cohesively collectively and so the cybernetic concept is that we don't just have these digital systems these computer systems but they also have a complex relationship with the people that are involved so not just the users that are using them in the ways that it was intended to be and it was imagined to be but also the hackers that are coming in and disrupting that and changing that and sometimes taking apart and putting it together differently. So we have this idea in science um, of reductivism that you can understand the behavior of the whole from the behavior of small components and, and how they work deterministically. However, sometimes you cannot necessarily extrapolate from the small scale behavior what will happen globally because of the complexity of the interactions. And so you have these emergent behaviors that cannot be foreseen or predicted. Um, And sometimes this can be problematic. It can be um, uh, chaotic in the negative way, such as with the rise of ransomware. But it can also be productive and beneficial where something, again, gets jammed or ossified or gets co-opted by the capitalistic encroachment of banality onto the web, where this sort of quirky open creative system of uh, something like GeoCities got converted now into this very controlled, regimented uh, system in Facebook publishing. Where this can get stuck in the rut, that is overcome by this emergent behavior. And that depends again on uh, the complexity of the interaction, on there being some scope for people to interface with those systems creatively. We have a question from artist Sarah Selby, who's asking, are you concerned about the impacts on privacy following what's happening in response to COVID-19? Seen in the press that there's been arguments for uh, apps that track our movements to know who we've come in contact with. We've seen those sorts of apps be very effective um, in other parts of the world, but they do raise a certain degree of privacy concerns. So do you think there's going to be an increase in surveillance in response to COVID-19? And if so, um, how do we respond to that as hackers? We're in this weird situation now where for the first time, really more than ever, um, there is an alignment of the interests of people who do not want this uh, virus to spread further and to result in more preventable deaths. And the f- fantasies or the wet dreams of the surveillance state in terms of harnessing these devices that we have in our pockets that track us wherever we go without our real informed consent. It's a difficult one because 
yes, it's very useful um, in terms of contact tracing. Uh, once we get enough testing to determine if someone has been infected, who they might have infected by their contact. And we know that the intelligence apparatus use these powers already, but they, they're generally a little bit circumspect about letting it on. Um, what we will probably see now, if it hasn't already happened, is that the governments will uh, say, yes, we are, we are now using your digital devices to follow you everywhere so that we can help contain this um, this pandemic. And that is a good thing in its limited scope for that purpose. Unfortunately, it breaches the bulwark of the unthinkable. And so once something has been done for a, a legitimate purpose, the genie is out of the bottle. And um, um, unfortunately, the tendency is to, uh, to broaden the use of these powers. And so it may be a lot harder to argue that this should not be done for some other purpose once we have, um, we have acquiesced to, to using it for this limited, useful uh, purpose. And Maureen, I just wonder your thoughts on um, what the impact of COVID-19 is going to be towards the way in which citizens are surveilled. Yeah, I fear that it will open up a whole new era of, of mass surveillance and new technologies. And if the events of 9-11 and the security industrial complex that grew after 9-11 are, are anything to go by, companies will find ways to make a lot of money. The risk will be fetishized and there'll be function creep of the laws that are put in place and the technologies that are put in place. It's tough, though, because obviously a global pandemic is a historic event. Public health is paramount. But, you know, I heard a really interesting critique in the last couple of days about how you get more cooperation, you get more effective outcomes when you rely on the collective goodness of people than when you impose authoritarian solutions that are punitive. And so if you need people to cooperate in a global pandemic, you need an informed and collaborative population, not a disinformed and coerced population. And so I think we really do need to be interrogating and questioning what they propose to bring in. And I think it's kind of laughable that we could have these, well, apparently China has already been using these very intrusive technologies um, right during the beginning of this outbreak. And yet we can't, we don't have effective testing. Like we don't have the simplest effective testing or even masks, which is like the most um, rudimentary technology that this whole model can't produce masks for their healthcare workers. And yet it could impose this huge apparatus of surveillance on us and justify it with this narrative of risk. And, and when it came to the um, anti-terrorism, they couldn't even prove that this surveillance had been effective, that it had actually that the NSA had even stopped a single terrorist plot with the massive amounts of, of surveillance that went on. We have another question from uh, YouTube, which is one about education. And it's really about how we reframe the idea of hacking as a skill that we can look at and put in a positive light. When we've come to education, we've heard the idea of computational thinking, but uh, we haven't really heard the word hacking used. So I guess the question from Dana is, uh, how do we reframe hacking as a skill that puts it in a positive light so that we can uh, do better education around its use? 
Um, so I, I would consider um, hacking to be a new form of literacy and also a new form of physical fitness in a way. If you're if you're physically fit, then you're nimble. You're able to move quickly on your, on your feet. You're able to respond to a threat uh, in a way that will uh, minimize the risk of harm to yourself. And you're also able to help others in, in a physical situation if you have you know something like self-defense skills. Um, also, literacy uh, enabled people to participate in political and civic systems in a way that they could not before the advent of the printing press by Gutenberg massively opened up the possibilities for religious thought amongst the people who belong to churches to understand the, the scriptures that they were supposedly um, believing in and, and deriving benefit from. And uh, we saw with um, shortly after the printing press was invented, the, the movement of pamphleteering that again opened up the power to People were not working within the political parties to to simply write a message out to get it printed and to to have a massive effect on the political discourse of the countries they were in. Um, so it's the same with hacking. It's it's a kind of literacy, a kind of skill set that enables you not just to be a rule taker, to use a phrase that we we unfortunately overusing in in the context of Brexit, but to be a a rule maker or a rule changer, uh, to be empowered to engage in the dialectic of technology on an even footing with the people who design systems and impose those systems upon us. And so I think it needs to be understood uh, and and explained and evangelized in that way is that this will empower you in the same way that being able to read and write empowers you and in the same way that being physically fit empowers you. And I, I see hacking very much synonymous with the idea of distributed power. It's people taking charge of things, taking things into their own hands when complex systems are not serving them. It's about distributed power. It's a very positive concept in that way. In some ways, this global pandemic is going to force us to unwind some of these global systems and to develop more local community economics and systems and supply chains. And so hacking, originally it's a technical practice, it's an ethos of technologists, but it's increasingly becoming a a metaphor for a new kind of social activism, which is all about distributed democracy, distributed power, distributed decision-making. Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight now that we are at this historic moment um, as a result of this um, pandemic, and not just the immediate medical effect of um, large numbers of people being incapacitated, but the the economic knock-on effect um, of having to, to to have these lockdowns and to have this. Um, I don't think I can go so far as to say control, but this uh, mandated shutdown of economic activity, uh, just at a time when we were, we have been expecting the soothsayers and the, the sort of prophets have been expecting there to be a massive breakdown anyway, as a result of climate change, as a result of the, the limited imagination of the people in power to respond to the changes in the world. It seems horrible to say this on the backs of so many people dying uh, horrifically, but there is a massive opportunity in this shutdown for a space of possibility to be opened up where we can imagine the end of work or the replacement, the reimagination of work, and also 
a return to, to, to local, to distributed systems that will be more ecologically robust and sustainable in the face of the, the massive disruptions that are going to be caused by, by climate change and, and also the breakdown, I would say, in, in um, traditional politics that we're seeing globally and the, the rise of authoritarianism. We need the creativity of the mindset of hacking. We also need the ability to dream up systems where local uh, organizational structures can take up the slack where massively centralized structures are not able to keep up or will fail because of supply line failures or, or any of the other um, black swan consequences of this uh, global crisis. So we need to all start hacking in our local communities um, as soon as possible and as enthusiastically as possible so that we have some chance of coming out of this calamitous event stronger and more resiliently. And, and I love that idea, Larry, that it's not just about, you know, hacking with computers, but it's about hacking our, our communities and the systems that we have today right now. I'm, I'm going to grab one more question, and it's asking about blockchain technology and whether it's, whether it's useful, whether it's a major hacktivism enabler. I think that peer-to-peer -peer technology combined with blockchain, so peer-to-peer Technology allows one-to-one -one exchange of value and also the creation of virtual supercomputers without centralized authority. But the problem with just peer-to-peer -peer technology is that it, it doesn't ensure trust, whereas blockchain added to peer-to-peer -to -peer can guarantee trust just by creating these numeric formulas which fit together like links in a chain they're like a record it's like it's like a distributed ledger that is um, one can rely on because it's created with with uh, numeric um, numeric links once you sort of get your head around that you realize that they, they have the the computer power and they have the trust mechanism to create huge ventures like that you could create alternative stock exchanges you could create alternative monetary systems you know bitcoin is an example it's a fairly flawed example but it's it's the prototype for blockchain technology um and so you know potentially we could replace corrupt legacy institutions like you know, the financialized economy, the flawed stock market with these new alternatives uh, that could rival the old rigged systems. Blockchain could help create electoral systems that are that are tamper proof. There's any number of imaginative things out there that, that people are starting to experiment with envisioning blockchain, although it's still a very new technology. So, uh, you know, it, it's got to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, so this comes down to the power of cryptography, and we, we could have talked about this more if we'd uh, had a bit more time to go into it, but um, one of the things that cryptography enables is the ability to began with passing messages um, without having to trust the medium along which you pass them, so whether that's the telegraph wire or the messenger or something like that, that's the first foundation that the the uh, the author and the recipient um, can have this confidence that that's not been uh, eavesdropped along the way. But then it's evolved um, these cryptographic technologies to reduce the need to trust 
intermediaries more generally rather than just in message passing but in through blockchain creating a history of transactions um, so that there is a shared idea of what is real and that takes away the need to trust financial intermediaries like banks and the global financial system which that trust unfortunately was poorly placed and we had a massive failure because of the reckless gambling of people working within that system that thought that they could continue extracting value by distributing risk and distributing risk and um, unfortunately that that risk um, suddenly got called the, the technical debt got called all at once and we're still picking up the pieces and we can expect that to happen again as a consequence of this um, COVID-19 pandemic where all of the entrenched risk and the the centralization of financial power is going to get called as a debt by reality Um, and we might need to have systems to take up the slack when some of those centralized systems break down and so blockchain not just through finance but um, more generally through the ability to have shared state to have a shared reality that we can all trust not because we are trusting in people to act honestly but because we remove the requirement for people to act honestly and the possibility for them to act dishonestly where the honesty is um, vouchsafed by the code itself, by the protocols and and how they work. And um, as Maureen said, we're just at the very start of this, some consider it to be the fourth industrial revolution. Um, And this ties into distributed systems and peer-to-peer systems. Um, So one of the things that I've imagined uh, for a long time is what might save the world. big ongoing interest of mine um, is local exchange trading schemes so that we do not have this one global reserve currency, which is the United States petrodollar, which is backed up. Um, well, it's, it's highly dependent on the extraction of fossil fuels, which we can no longer do if we want to have a, a environment to live in in the future. But it's also backed up by military, the threat of military might. And it gives disproportionate power to the United States to to de- deflate its own currency, inflate its own currency. Um, and this causes all sorts of geo political tensions. Maureen, I had two final questions to wrap up this conversation. And and the first one was, in this day and age, does it feel like it's become easier to hack human beings than it has to hack computers? Does the practice of captology and the actions of Cambridge Analytica prove that sometimes it's just easier to use the current system and manipulate human beings rather than hack those technological systems? Well, I guess it depends who's doing the hacking. But I, I, I think the Cambridge Analytica story was uh, a very dispiriting, sobering story about how easy it is to hack our our people and our um, our beliefs. All of us now are living in these bubbles of information, and to that extent, I think we all have to become aware that we're uh, becoming more and more divided from each other because we we're losing this shared knowledge or basis of source of sources of information that allow us to come to consensus um, because we're sharing our 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 assumptions Uh, it really does matter how we gather knowledge and how we um, analyze it and that we have some shared facts from which to uh, come to our conclusions Um, so yeah i think human beings are very easy to hack But I think hackers are showing that systems also can be hacked. You know, this century could hold some really big changes and and good changes. And and if it is becoming easier to hack human beings, then I guess what can hackers do to hack back? 
Um, so I would actually uh, argue against the becoming part of that um, thesis because it's always been that humans are the weakest link. And um, the, the canonical example was Kevin Mitnick, one of the most famous or infamous hackers. Um, he was actually a predominantly a social engineer. So he would call up people working in the, the tech center. He'd get the phone number by you know experimentally dialing lots of numbers or by reaching into the bins and he would just put on a little a little act and he'd say can you can you find this modem can you read out the number from the back of it or uh, what's the password to get into this and and he'd convince them by preying on people's natural social tendency to be trusting if you if you hear the right jargon if you're put into a bit of a, a bit of tension and you're convinced that something bad's going to happen if you don't help and then people will go along with that and so it remains the case today that um, you can get a lot further um, for example in my job we do penetration tests and sometimes you can hack the systems but sometimes it's a lot easier to hack the people that are in a position of trust within those systems and um, at the moment we have a difficulty with this because of the rise of disinformation. So people no longer have as much trust in mainstream media, in the, in the BBC or CNN, unfortunately, because they were lied to about the reasons that um, we went to war in the Middle East and uh, various other things. Um, and so people are rightly suspicious, but that's created a vacuum of trust, which is exploited by um, some people in the alternative news system who are not necessarily acting out of good intentions and more recently um, by nation states that are seeking to use the chaos of people not necessarily knowing what is true to spread conspiracy theories or to um, to create chaos within the political systems through bots and trolls. And this has now been harnessed by Cambridge Analytica so that people who are sort of within the political system uh, are using these dirty tricks, paying for micro-targeted Facebook adverts that are based on dossiers of people from information that's been collected without their informed consent and that allows this psych psychographical profiling so that you know exactly the right things to say to certain demographics of people. And Facebook allows such narrow targeting of adverts that um, it's much more effective to throw campaign money into that. Um, and it really raises the question of, do we have a working democracy where people are having such a distorted view of the political conversation that they, they're effectively being manipulated. And it's always been the case that politicians have sought to manipulate people. That's what demo, demagogy is. But it's becoming so much more effective to do that at scale now that we, we really need to have a serious conversation. And I think the only real solution to that is two things we can do. One is to break up the centralized tech platforms that we're so beholden to where we're treated like cattle and livestock by Facebook and Twitter. We're, we're not the users, we're the product. And that's going terribly wrong. So we can break that up into a more federated system where there's more local autonomy and it's harder to subvert them at scale. Uh, but the other thing is just literacy. So we really need to rebuild the massive deficit in critical thinking faculties where we have not been encouraged and we have not been taught in schools to engage with assertions and information that's presented to us critically to, uh, to try and verify things independently, to not just run from one authority that we've lost trust in to the next alternative authority that we then throw all our trust in and we end up believing ridiculous things about 5g towers causing viruses or flat earth and and and, um, and i'm having to fight these people that i i used to encourage to be critical and to be uh, opposing the authority of the mainstream narrative who have now gone so far down the rabbit hole of believing that their alternative sources that they're they've been manipulated and they're now 
you know, risking the, the containment measures that we need to fight the virus because they think it's uh, all a hoax or they're worried about a mandatory vaccine because they've bought into these anti-vax concerns, you know, that could risk our, our ability to recover from this crisis. And so it's it's very difficult and it's an uphill struggle um, to, to get people to engage in doubt and paranoia, not just doing it more, but to do it right, to, to actually hone that skill to be critical. And that in some way feels like what will be our greatest challenge for hackers to combat over the next possibly five years. At this stage, I want to thank both of you. You've been absolutely incredible guests. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Luke. And um, up the rebels and free Julian. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you to Maureen and Lowry for sharing their thoughts on the vital role hackers play in society. You can find out more by purchasing Maureen Webb's new book, Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance, and Authoritarianism, available now from the MIT Press. And don't forget, you can watch the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net, where you can also find out about all of our live stream events. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.